All right, we will go ahead and get started. We'll begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I'll read from the book of Daniel. As I watched, thrones were set up and the ancient one took his throne. His clothing was snow bright and the wool on his head was white as wool. His throne was flames of fire with wheels of burning fire. A surging stream of fire flowed out from where he sat. Thousands upon thousands were ministering to him, and myriads upon myriads attended him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So last week I finished going through sort of the parts of the Mass. And so I figured this week I would talk about just some final thoughts, some final things that I think are important or things people have asked me to talk about. And the first one is transubstantiation. Transubstantiation, I would argue, is probably the third most important dogma of the Catholic faith. You have the Trinity, you have the incarnation of Christ, and then you have the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, or transubstantiation. As you will see, it is the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist which makes the Mass the Mass. It's why we do what we do. It's why I hold my fingers together. It's why the Mass is a sacrifice. It's why there's a decorum. It's why it's a sacred space. It's all because Christ is really present in the Eucharist, and that dogma is called, since the time of Trent, transubstantiation. So. I know on my handout this week, it's pretty text heavy, and it's always a bummer when someone stands up in front of you and reads, but that's the way it's going to be. So if we start on 1A, you will see this first quote from Trent, and it says, if anyone denies that in the sacrament of the most holy Eucharist, the body and blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ, is truly, really, and substantially contained, but says he is in it only as an assign or figure or by his power, let him be anathema. Anathema means excommunicated, thrown out from the church. So you never want to be anathema. So whenever there is an anathema, you want to believe the opposite. So Trent is saying that if anyone denies the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, if anyone says that he's only present in a sign or a figure, let him be anathema, let him be thrown out. So Trent is affirming that Jesus Christ is really present under the appearance of bread and wine in the Eucharist. The next quote in B, I won't read the whole thing, but it's the same thing. They say the same thing, that if anyone says that in the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist, the substance of bread and wine remains together with the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and denies that wonderful and unique, unique change of the whole substance of the bread into his body and the whole substance of the wine into his blood while only the species of bread and wine remain, a change which the Catholic Church very fittingly calls transubstantiation, let him be anathema. So obviously those are directed against the Protestant reformers, against Luther and against those who deny the real presence. So transubstantiation, what does that mean and what does it not mean sort of in terms that people understand, right? So if you think of the world, there are things in the world which possess certain characteristics. So think of like a dog. A dog has a certain height and a certain weight, right? Those are its characteristics. Now notice you never see height and weight walking around on their own, right? You see things 
that have a certain height, and you see things that have a certain weight. And so there's a distinction in the world between characteristics and things which possess characteristics. And in the classical world, characteristics were called accidents from the Latin achidit, which means to happen to something. And things which possess characteristics, like you and I, were called substances. So you have a dog, a substance in the classical sense, and that dog has certain accidents, certain characteristics. It has a color, it has fur, it has height, it has weight, right? All of these characteristics, okay. So keep that in mind now when we think about transubstantiation, the change of Christ. So if you were to go in the sacristy right now, you would find a jug of altar wine and you would find unconsecrated hosts. So you would see bread. If you tasted it, it would taste like bread. If you smelled it, it would smell like bread. If you drank the wine, it would taste like wine. If you drank enough of the wine, you would be intoxicated, right? It has the characteristics of wine. Looks like wine, smells like wine. If somebody asked you, what is it? You would say it is wine, and you would be correct, right? Bread and wine, nothing fancy. Looks like wine is wine. Looks like bread is bread. Has the appearance of bread, and it has the essence, the nature, the whatness of bread. So that gets brought out to the altar at Mass, and then I say the words of consecration, and notice what happens now. It still looks like bread. When you receive communion, it still tastes like bread. It still smells like bread. If you drink the wine, it still tastes like wine. It still looks like wine. It will still intoxicate you like wine. So both the bread and the wine still have all the characteristics of bread and wine. However, if someone asks you what those things are, you would no longer say bread and wine. You would say it is the body and blood of Christ. So the characteristics of bread and wine remain, but what they are, the substance changes, transubstantiation, the change of the substance. So it becomes the body and blood of Christ. So now it looks like wine and looks like bread, but it is not bread and wine. It is the body and blood of Christ. And as Trent rightly points out, because in the person of Jesus Christ, his humanity was joined to his divinity, wherever the humanity of Christ is, so is his divinity. And so if the body of Christ is on my altar, the divinity, the divine nature of Christ is on the altar as well. That's why immediately after the consecration, I genuflect, because God is in my midst. So right now, looks like bread and wine and is bread and wine. After the words of consecration, looks like bread and wine, but it is no longer bread and wine. It is the body and the blood of Christ. That's transubstantiation in a nutshell, right? So the question is, that's pretty miraculous, that's pretty wondrous, why would we believe that? Because it doesn't look like the body of Christ and it doesn't look like the bread of Christ. It doesn't taste like the body of Christ. It doesn't taste like the blood of Christ. So why do we hold to this dogma? Well, we will go through it, right? So if you go on C, you see on the first page, the testimony of the early Christians. The early Christians all held to the real presence of Christ. And so I have just some quotes there. I could have thrown like a thousand at you, but I didn't, I just picked a few. So we had the first one from Justin the Martyr, and he lived about 165 AD, so he was pretty ancient. He says, we do not receive these as ordinary bread and ordinary drink. We have learned that he has become the food 
through the words of the Eucharistic prayer. So notice he's saying when it happens, the Eucharistic prayer, which nourishes our blood and our flesh by way of transformation, think transubstantiation, through the flesh and blood of this incarnate Jesus. You have right below that, Irenaeus of Lyon. He was around 200 AD. He was a pretty powerful figure. Lyon was one of the intellectual centers at the time. And so he kind of was well-versed in the apostolic doctrine. And he says, the bread over which thanksgiving is pronounced is the body of the Lord and the chalice of his blood. And finally, a couple hundred years later, but still pretty early, you have St. Augustine in number three there. And it says, the bread which you see on the altar is sanctified by the word of God, the body of Christ. That chalice, or rather what is contained in the chalice, is sanctified by the word of God, the blood of Christ. So the first reason for thinking this is the testimony of the early Christians, right, who were descendants of the apostles, pretty early descendants. But you also have the testimony of sacred scripture, and I put that there in D. And the place where most of the time people will point to is John 6, which is the famous bread of life discourse. So I give sort of an outline of it right there in A, B, and C. So Jesus is having this discourse with some of his disciples and some Jews and various people. And first, in John 6, he speaks generally of the true heavenly bread which descends from heaven and confers eternal life on the world. So he actually references the manna in the desert, which Israel received from God. So he's setting it up with an Old Testament typology, we would call it. And he's saying that the manna which Israel received in the desert from God, which came down from heaven, by which they lived on, is a foreshadow of the Eucharist. Jesus Christ coming down from heaven, giving not earthly life now, but eternal life. Then he designates himself has this life-giving bread, and he says it demands faith in order to be received. So notice now how you ultimately will know that Jesus Christ is present in the Eucharist. Your eyes are not going to see it, your physical eyes. It's going to be the eyes of faith, right? It looks like bread and wine, the eyes of faith see it as Christ. And then finally, there in C, he identifies the true heavenly bread with his flesh and makes the consumption of his flesh and the drinking of his blood necessary for the possession of eternal life. So that's an outline of the bread of life discourse. If you flip the page, I put there John 6, 49 through 58. And I know it's a lot of text, but this is like the moment. This is, if you had to stake your life on one thing, this would be worth it. Otherwise, I'm, I'm gonna go do something else, right, if this is false. So it begins, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. So he's referencing right away the Old Testament. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So what's happening here is the Jews know that in the old law, they are commanded not to drink the blood of animals, and they know they are not supposed to eat human flesh. And so they're immediately troubled by this. They say, well, wait a minute, Lord, or Jesus, you are claiming that we must eat your flesh and drink your blood. 
That's problematic for a Jew. So they are, they are troubled. A few verses earlier, it says they grumbled. And it's like the same word which in the Old Testament God uses to talk about how Israel would grumble against him. So the Jews are having a problem with this. They're saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And what's important here is what Jesus does not do. He doesn't go to the Jews and say, you misunderstood me. I was just speaking poetically. He doesn't go to the Jews and he doesn't say, guys, you misunderstood me. I am just using figures of speech. He doesn't go to them and say that my, I was just using a, a sign or a symbol. It's not actually me. It's only a sign or a symbol. He doesn't do any of that. In fact, if you notice what he does in the next few verses is he actually does the exact opposite. He doubles down. And so in 53, verse 53, he says, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this blood bread will live forever. So the Jews question it. They're having troubles with the literal sense of his words, and Jesus doubles down on them. And so I mentioned just two things. In verse 655, when it says true or real food, that's what the Greek word means, right? Jesus is saying, this is real food. This is true. And then in John 654, when he says that verb, which means to eat, or which is translated as eat, it literally means to like gnaw or to like chew. Like think about like ribs, how you gnaw on the bone. It's very visceral. Christ is using strong words here. And then I also write before that in I, I put this little thing from John 3, two, verses 2 through 5. And what that points out is when Jesus is speaking figuratively and people misunderstand him, he always corrects them. So Nicodemus when Jesus says, you must be reborn to enter the kingdom of heaven, and Nicodemus has that funny line where he's like, well, how are you supposed to crawl back into the womb? Jesus immediately says, no, 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 I'm speaking figuratively. And the point is, in the bread of life discourse, Jesus does the exact opposite. They take his words literally, they are troubled by them, and Jesus remains in the literal sense. He says, no, this is true. So that, I think, scripturally, is probably the best evidence for believing it. If the words of Christ are true, if Christ is God, then he would speak the truth, and if his words are true, then he is really present in the Eucharist. So it becomes his body and his blood. I should have added a couple more little bullet points here because there are ramifications of this. So if Jesus Christ is really present during Mass, what does that mean? So think of the cross. Think of Good Friday, which we will celebrate soon and very soon, right? Think of Good Friday. Jesus Christ was the victim. He was that which was offered. He offered himself, and he was also the priest on the cross. He was the one who offered, and he was the one who was offered. He was victim and priest. During the sacrifice of the Mass, Jesus Christ is once again the victim. He is the bread and the wine which we offer to God the Father, he is the Lamb of God, which is offered to God the Father. 
but he's also the one who offers himself to God the Father. I am only his instrument. My priesthood only derives its power from the priesthood of Jesus Christ. So he works through me. I am his servant. And so on the cross, Jesus was both victim and priest. During the Mass, the same Jesus Christ who died on the cross is once again both victim and priest. So the cross, Good Friday, and each and every Mass has the same offerer and the same offering, Jesus Christ. The only difference is what they say the mode of the offering. So on Calvary, Jesus Christ offered himself in bloody manner, right? He literally died. His body and his soul were separated. During the Mass, this is only mystical or symbolic, right? You have the double consecration. I consecrate first the bread of Christ, and then I consecrate the blood of Christ. When your body and your blood are separated, you don't have to be a uh, biology major to know you die, right? If body and blood are separated, you're not going to make it. That's what happens on the altar. It is the mystical separation of the body and blood of Christ. The death of Christ is done symbolically, mystically on the altar. So the priest, Jesus Christ, is the same at every mass and on Good Friday. The victim, the one who is offered, Jesus Christ, is the same on Good Friday and at every mass. The only difference is the mode, the manner in which the sacrifice is done. And so what this ultimately leads to is the very simple fact of what the Mass does. It makes present the sacrifice of the cross. The sacrifice of the cross, which happened 2,000 years ago, is made present at every Mass. It also celebrates the memory of this sacrifice, right? We proclaim your death, O Lord, until you come again, right? Those words from Paul. But also, because it's the same Jesus Christ offering himself to God the Father, the power and the effects of what Jesus did on Good Friday are once again applied to the Mass. And so what that means is every Mass is an infinite act of worship to God the Father. Because Jesus Christ is God, and whenever God acts, he acts infinitely. It's because he's an infinite being, right? That's what things act in according to nature, their natures. Dogs do dog things. God does God things. And God is infinite, so God does things infinitely. And so when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that act infinitely glorified God because it was God offering himself to God. That death also atoned for our sins, an infinite number of sins, because it was an infinitely perfect sacrifice. It was also an infinite act of thanksgiving and of praise. And so because it's the same Jesus Christ at Mass offering himself to God the Father, it is an infinite act of glorification. It infinitely washes away and atones for our sins. That's why when you die, you want to have funeral Masses said for you. You want to have Masses said for you. It's good because it's an infinite act of worship and atonement to God. It also brings infinite praise to God and infinite thanksgiving to God. So every Mass is an infinite act of worship to God the Father because Jesus Christ offers himself through me to God the Father. So that's why you want to go to daily Mass, if you think about it. Because through your baptism, you have been joined to Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus Christ is on the altar, and he is offering himself to God the Father, because of your baptism, you are joined to Jesus Christ. You're part of the body of Christ. So you get sucked up, in a good way, 
into this infinite act of worship and atonement and thanksgiving and praise to God the Father. It's pretty awesome. That's what happens at every Mass. It's basically Good Friday all over again, just in a different manner, but it's the same Jesus Christ. So that's why you, A, see why I do what I do at Mass. That's also why the Mass is what it is. It's a sacrifice, and you see now why transubstantiation is so important, because it makes everything we do what it is. All right. We'll go to number two now. Ad orientum. So many people, one of the hot-button liturgical issues in the church, and you know you're way too far into the church when you know the hot-button issues, right? But I'm a priest, so I have to know these things. One of the hot-button issues is the, which way does the, pray, the priest face during Mass? And so first, I'll present the traditional way, and I'll say this is why they did what they did for Many, many years, Mass was celebrated this way, 1,500 years, 1,600 years, maybe even up to 1,900 years, depending on who you ask. So, ad orientum in Latin means to the east. The oriens in Latin means to rise, so it's the, towards the rising sun, towards the east, right? So, the simplest argument for it is you should look at the one you are talking to. If, your kid, if you're talking to your kid and he turns your back on you, what do you do? You smack him upside the head, right? You face me when you are talking, right? So if you came to the St. Joseph Mass, the, um, the 7 p.m. that Monday, you noticed I celebrated at Adorantum. And what you should notice was when I was talking to you, I turned towards you. And then when I was talking to God, I turned towards God. So you just look at the one you're talking to. It's, it's sometimes just that simple, right? So you have that. You also have this notion in number two there of returning to Eden. And so if you think way back to the first Wednesday talk I give, way back at the beginning of Lent when we were still friends and everything was still good, right? I talked about the Garden of Eden and I quoted Genesis 2.8 and I said that the Lord planted a garden in the east and there he put the man he had formed. So paradise is in the east. And then we got thrown out of paradise because of sin. And through Jesus Christ, we are now journeying back towards paradise. And if you think of the church as the bark of Peter, the ship of Peter, it's like we're sailing back towards paradise. And so you would have the priest leading his people back towards paradise. And we all want to go east. We want to go back to paradise. So it's just the priest up front leading his people to the east. That was sort of the second mystical reason. In the Greek tradition, you had this strong idea, and I listed it there as number three, of an entrance into heaven. And I have this quote here from Pope Gregory the Great. It's interesting. I just said it's the East, and now I'm quoting a Latin father. But you wouldn't have known that if I didn't tell you that, so just ignore that. But it says, For who of the faithful can have any doubt that at the moment of immolation, at the moment of sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Mass, at the sound of the priest's voice, the heavens stand open and choirs of angels are present at the mystery of Jesus Christ. There at the altar, the, lowly, the lowliest is united with the most sublime. Earth is joined to heaven. The visible and invisible somehow merge into one. That's a great quote. You should take that to a holy hour, at least one. It'll give you at least material for one holy hour. But the idea is is that at Mass, heaven and earth are joined. And so if you think of what happens at Mass, essentially, 
the gates of heaven are being opened up to you and you are entering into the heavenly worship. And so in the east, you would see these basilicas. And now you'll see what Father Nathan got the idea. They have a little cross on the tabernacle. They have a big mural, usually a mural of heaven, Christ in glory. And what the people would focus on during mass is not actually the altar, interestingly, in the east back in the day. They would focus on the mural because they saw themselves through the mass entering into heaven. And so you would want the priest to face the same direction because you want the priest to be leading you to heaven. If the priest has his back on heaven, you shouldn't follow that guy. Just, I'm throwing that out there, right? If you see me going away from heaven, go find a different priest, go, go someplace else. And so you'd have the priest and all of his people journeying towards heaven, journeying towards this glorious mural, right? That's what they're focused on. So you have that idea. I also pointed here in one, that's the importance of daily mass. I was talking to Father Nick Baumgartner the other day, who's my friend. He's, um, he was kind of my mentor in seminary. And he was a priest. He's a priest now at St. Joseph's in Grafton. And I was telling him about, you know, the very struggles of praying the mass well. And I said, you know, that's problematic when you think about it. Because if the book, book of Revelation is right, and it is, then the mass is essentially a foretaste of heaven. And heaven is basically a giant mass. And I said, you know... If as a priest you're having a hard time celebrating Mass, you're going to have a hard time in heaven, which probably means you're not going to get sent there, right? And he said, yeah, yes, Father. It's probably true. And then he quoted C.S. Lewis. And I didn't look up this quote, so if it's wrong, I blame Father Nick. But he said that C.S. Lewis said that heaven is an acquired taste. It's a very, like, Lewis or Chesterton line. And what he meant by that is, we were sort of made to worship God. That's what we were made for, to love God, to enter into the Trinitarian life. But because of sin, because of the world, because of our own brokenness, because of our own humanity, we, we find it hard to do. And so we almost have to retrain ourselves to worship God. And every time you go to Mass, you are essentially retraining yourself to worship God. And so you go to Mass one day and maybe you don't pay that, that good of attention. All right, go back the next day and pray the Mass a little bit better. And then the day after that, go back and pray it a little bit better. And if you do that every day, by the end of your life, you're going to be very, very good at worshiping God. You're going to be very, very good at focusing on God. You're going to be very, very good at handing yourself over to God, to glorifying Him. Then you die and you're all set because you know how to do heavenly things and the kingdom of heaven will await you. So again, everybody facing east because everyone's going to heaven. The fourth reason for ad orientum was the issue of the risen Christ and his second coming. And I quoted Ezekiel 43, 2 here, and it says, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And so the idea was the priest and all of his people would face east, awaiting the risen Christ, right? The sun rises in the east. Ezekiel says that the glory of the Lord will come from the east. And so it's like everyone's watching. Everyone is waiting, saying, Christ, come back to us. We await your second coming. Everyone's facing east. Everyone's waiting him. And so in summary here, I have this giant quote by St. John Damascene from the 7th century. But he gets everything I just said exactly right. He says... It is not without reason or by chance that we worship towards the east, ad orientum. Since God is spiritual light, 
and Christ in sacred scripture is called Son of Justice and Orient, the East should be dedicated to his worship. <clears throat> so he's saying Jesus Christ is the light of the world. When you see the rising sun, you should think of Christ. So face that. Also, the divine David says, and that would be the Psalms, Sing to God, ye kingdoms of the earth. Sing ye to the Lord who mounteth above the heavens of heavens to the east. Sing to the east, the Psalms are saying. And still again, scripture says, And the Lord has planted a paradise in Eden to the east, wherein he placed man whom he had formed, and whom he cast out when he had transgressed, and made him to live over against the paradise of pleasure or in the west. So what John Damascene is saying is that Eden, the place of paradise, was in the east. And then when they got thrown out of paradise, they got thrown out to the west. So don't go west. Face east. Go east, right? Thus it is that when we worship God, we long for our ancient fatherland and gaze toward it, right? Going back to Eden. As a matter of fact, when the Lord was crucified, he looked toward the west. And so we worship gazing toward him. The Lord looks at us in the west. We gaze at him in worship. And when he was taken up, he ascended to the east, and thus the apostles worshipped him, and thus he shall come in the same way as they had seen him going into heaven. He will come from the east. As the Lord himself says, his lightning cometh out of the east, and appeareth even in the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And so while we are awaiting him, we worship toward the east. This is, moreover, the unwritten tradition of the apostles, for they have handed many things down to us unwritten. Perfect. He gets all the talking points. Well done, John Damascene, right? So facing east. So that was ad orientum. And as I mentioned, we did that for a long time. So very quickly, I will mention versus populum. So versus populum is the idea that the priest faces the people. This idea was, I don't know if it was first proposed, but the first time it became like an issue was actually because of Martin Luther. Martin Luther didn't like the idea of the sacrifice of the mass because he didn't like the idea of transubstantiation. And so he liked the idea of the Eucharist as a banquet. And so he was trying to get rid of symbols of sacrifice. And one way he thought he could do that is put the priest on the other side of the altar. His argument was largely historical. He said, wait a minute, think of the Last Supper. Jesus Christ sat in the middle and he was surrounded by his apostles and we should recreate that. Many of the Lutheran churches did not follow him. In fact, if you go to most Lutheran churches now, the priest still faces ad orientum. There's also a major problem with his historical reading of the Last Supper. So if you go to the very last page, I have this icon here. It's from St. Apollinare Nuovo in Ravenna. You can't really tell that great because it's in black and white. But if you will notice, on the far left, you will see Jesus. And then you notice all of his disciples. That's what the Last Supper would have actually looked like. They would have sat at what's called a triclinium. And think of a triclinium as like a U. So you have two edges and then you have a flat edge. The place of honor on the triclinium was not actually in the center. You know, you see all these paintings of the Last Supper of Jesus in the center. That's not where he would have been historically. The place of honor was actually on the right side. And so Jesus wouldn't have been facing the way that Luther thought. So historically, it doesn't even work. So Catholic proponents uh, versus Populum, it began in the 18th century. That was the first time you started to hear some grumblings of it. At first, it made little headway. 
And then, on the top of page four, I mentioned it started to gain some steam in the 1920s, and you had what was called the youth movement, you had the reform movement of the liturgy, and it started to gain some steam. And one of the arguments they used was St. Peter's Basilica. St. Peter's, Peter's Basilica faces the wrong way. Right? The, the priest would face, to face east, he would have to stand on the backside of the altar right here. So imagine if that direction was east, the priest to face east would stand there and all the people would look at him. And they said, see, mass has been celebrated versus poblum. What they didn't realize at the time, which historians have now pointed out, is during the Eucharistic prayer, all the people would actually stand up, turn their back on the priest and face east. So the priest would be behind them all. All of them would face east together. So even in situations where the church was built the wrong direction because of land and whatnot, there was always this desire of this eastern facing. So then I say in number seven, what now? Because ultimately what happens through all of this is the Second Vatican Council doesn't mention direction of worship at all. They just, they completely punt on the issue. It's not in any of the documents. But after the council, it becomes an option. So now you can celebrate mass either facing the people or facing east as a priest. It's really the presider's choice. So... I have a couple long quotes in here. The first one, um, so I say both options are permitted. The first thing I have is a quote from the General Instruction for the Roman Missal, 299 there, um, which is number one on page four. It says, the altar should be built separate from the wall in such a way that it is possible to walk around it easily and that mass can be celebrated at it facing the, the people, which is desirable wherever possible. So this is a strange line and the English translation of it makes it stranger than it is. In Latin, it's a little bit clearer. But what happened of this is the church had to clarify because some bishops were using this to argue that mass could not be celebrated ad orantum, that it had to be celebrated facing the people. And so a question gets submitted to the Congregation for Divine Worship, and I have it there in A, and then in one, it says the Congregation for Divine Worship and the discipline of the sacraments after mature reflection if you're gonna reflect, you gotta do it maturely, right? If you're a cardinal and a bishop. And in light of liturgical precedences, responds negative. So they're saying, no, you can, it, it's not forbidding autorantum. You can celebrate mass both ways. And then they give this magnificent little paragraph on what the mass is, and it's number two. And it says, however, whatever may be the position of the celebrating priest, so whether he's versus poblum or ad orantum, it is clear that the Eucharistic sacrifice is offered to the one and triune God, and that the principal, eternal, and high priest is Jesus Christ, who acts through the ministry of the priest, who visibly presides as his instrument. So all the things I talked about, right? The liturgical assembly, you guys, participate in the celebration in virtue of the common priesthood of the faithful. Think of your baptism, which requires the ministry of the ordained priest to be exercised in the Eucharistic synaxis. Honestly, I have no idea what that means. The physical position, especially with respect to the communication among the various members of the assembly, must be distinguished from the interior spiritual orientation of all. So it's saying whatever way you face, this is what you should interiorly be doing. It would be a grave error to imagine that the principal orientation of the sacrificial action is toward the community. So he's saying we're not worshiping one another. 
If the priest celebrates versus Popolum, which is legitimate, so it's fine and often advisable, his spiritual attitude ought always to be versus Deum, towards God, per Jesum Christo, toward God through Jesus, as representative of the entire church. So there you go. So this is what ultimately happened. The church said you can celebrate it both ways. What is important is that you recognize that the mass is offered towards God. So you see why it's a hot button issue, because some people think that, and I would tend to agree with them, if you're going to offer the mass towards God, you visually want to represent that, because you should act and you should celebrate in accord with sort of what you're thinking. So if I'm thinking about offering the mass towards God, it makes sense that I'm facing God. So both are permitted, it's essentially up to the presider, and we will take a break and then I will answer questions. So five minute break. All right, so I will take questions. I know I covered some things that are pretty technical today. So you can ask me about clarifications of anything or if there was something earlier that you want clarified or if there's something I didn't cover, you can also ask. So it is all fair game, so. Questions, 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 questions. Yes. Hmm? Yep. Yes, the question is what is symbolic and what is not? As St. Thomas would say, we must make a distinction, right? Thomas's problem, our way of solving every problem. So what is not symbolic is the presence of Christ. The presence of Christ is real and actual. He is really present under the appearance of bread and wine. What is somewhat symbolic is the death of Christ. It's, I would probably call it mystical. The separation of the body and blood of Christ is mystical representation of his death on the cross. So it's not a symbol insofar as Christ is present. It is a symbol insofar as he's not actually dying again on the cross on my altar. There you go. Also, one other thing, if I may defend theologians everywhere. So St. Anselm used to always say that uh, theology is faith-seeking understanding. And so, there are certain truths which we know by faith, right, that Jesus is present. When we study them as theologians, what we are trying to do to the best of our ability is ponder them and come to a greater understanding of them. So when I am discussing the Eucharist, when St. Thomas was discussing the Eucharist, when he was using all of this classical philosophy, what he's trying to do, he's saying, look, I know by faith that Jesus Christ is present. I'm trying to understand that better by thinking about it, that sort of theology in the proper sense. And the in game of theology, and this is why I cannot stand academia, and I know this is recorded, but I've, been to, I've spoken out against academia so many times that it might as well be on the internet, right? The problem with too many theologians today is they study God for the sake of their thesis, and they study God for the sake of their degree. That is the wrong reason to ponder the truths of the faith. The whole point of studying theology and reading sacred scripture is to grow in your knowledge of God. Because, as Augustine says, you cannot love what you do not know. And so the more you know God, the more you should love God, and the more you should serve God. And that should be the end game of theology, not a degree. Because loving God is infinitely better than some useless piece of paper, right?
So there we go. Hopefully I defended theologians out there. All right, any other questions? Yes, Ms. Gog. It's a good question. So the question is, is if the Eucharist is the body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, then what about when you only have one species, when you only have the body and you only have the blood? There's this very complicated doctrine, which I won't get into, which is called concomitance or something. It's some fancy word. But the short answer is yes, it is all there. That's why you only need communion under one species. Because think of a body and think of Jesus' body. Jesus' body is where right now? It's living, right? If it's in a tomb, we screwed up. We've been wasting our life, and I've majorly screwed up, right? If he's not in a tomb, if he's living, then, we, then we're doing the right thing, right? A living body has what in it? Blood. I hope so, right? Blood. If you have blood, and it's the blood of a living person, what must it be contained in? A body. So that's sort of the answer that you will get. So yes, if you only receive the body of Christ, you receive all of Christ. You receive his divinity. If you only receive the blood of Christ, you receive all of Christ. Where you will see that is the disease, if there's medical people and I get this wrong, you can help me, I believe it's called celiac, where you can't have any gluten. You're so intolerant to gluten, you cannot have any gluten. Because the low gluten hosts still have some gluten. Because bread, by its essence, has gluten. And so every host to be valid, to be bread, has to have some gluten. There are some people that can't even have low gluten hosts, and so what we are instructed to do by the archdiocese is to only give them the precious blood. So the question is going back to liturgical music, which is Sacrosanctum Concilium says that Gregorian chant is supposed to have pride of place. And the question basically is why does it not? It's because in the modern world, I think one of the biggest mistakes we make, and I make it all the time as a priest, so I'm not criticizing anybody, is we mistake the distinction between something being permitted and something being preferred. And so Gregorian chant was preferred by the council. However, they did permit other types of music. And what seemed to happen, and it happens all the time with humans, is we get permitted to do something, and then all of a sudden that's all we do, right? It's like your kid, you let them do something, just this one-time exemption, like get on their phone at night, and then what, what do they want to do every night? Get on their phone. So permitted and preferred are distinct. And it seems like one of the things that happened after the council is there was some degree of excitement about new music, and then next thing you know, Gregorian chant was sort of just forgotten. The other issue you have is chant is hard to sing. Uh, at the 1030 Mass for the um, Palm Sunday, the choir sang the entrance antiphon, and they sang it right out of the missal. And I turned to Nicholas Waddell, I made sure my microphone was off, and I said, that was quite impressive. And what I was so impressed with is it's hard to sing Gregorian chant if you're not trained in it. And Nicholas and myself, even though you probably can't tell, we were trained in it, right? And I was very impressed that they, they sang it on the spot and they sang it, sang it excellent. So another issue you have is, as a priest, if you're going to have your people sing a certain way, you're going to have to help them get there. And so that is at play as well. Because it's easier just to sing. Everybody sings to the radio, they sing in the shower, they do everything. Most of you probably don't sit in your trucks or cars and do Gregorian chant. I mean, I do, but you guys are normal. It's like, <laughs> I remember one time, is in the seminar, I'm walking by a guy's room, and you can hear the shower going, and he's like singing Gregorian chant. I was just like, oh my gosh, I gotta get out of this place. These guys are insane. So that's the other issue. But I agree. I mean, I, I think there should be an emphasis, and you just add it here and there. You know, having the entrance antiphon chanted, 
I thought at the 1030 Mass was very beautiful. And we had the song too, so the St. Joseph Mass, um, Abigail sang magnific magnificently. The Gloria was in the form of chant. And so you just introduce it, and you get people used to it, and they learn to sing it. Next thing you know, they'll be driving down the street singing Gregorian chant, and then I will have one. It's a good question. So why the body and the blood? So the tradition was in the West that there would only be communion in one species because you receive everything. In the East, the preference was always both. They liked the symbol, the fullness of the symbol. You receive both the body and the blood. It's a little more symbolic. It was a sign of unity. And so there was a push in, again, only in the United States. I mentioned this last week. The U.S. has always been abnormal in this regard. There was a desire to have both communion under both species for sort of that symbolism. I think part of it is in the United States, we, there's, we, we have this idea of like equality and it's like, well, if the priest is going to have both, then everybody has to have both, right? They don't have that problem in Spain probably. Well, maybe they do. I don't know. So that's how it came about. There was. There, one of the things the church fought against a lot in the 40s and the 50s is what Pius, I think it was Pius Twelfth, it may have been Pius X, called antiquarianism. It was a very common thing going through where it was like you find the most ancient practice and you just immediately go back to that. And the problem with that is it disregards the development of doctrine. So when Jesus Christ at the Last Supper promises the Holy Spirit to his disciples, he talks about how the Holy Spirit will guide them to all truth. So if the Holy Spirit is active in the church, and it must be, otherwise we would have failed a long time ago because we have too many incompetent humans running things, right? So if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, we'd be gone. The Holy Spirit guides the church in certain practices, and so things develop, and we come to greater understandings of certain truth. And so if you just immediately always want to go back to the most ancient practice, you basically deny God's providence throughout human history. And so I wonder if a little antiquarianism snuck in, because it was a major problem in the West in the 40s and the 50s. Yeah. Like at the cemetery. Yeah. So Father Nathan, Father Nathan pointed this out to me. I actually didn't know this. We, I forget how we get, came up on this topic. He told me that back in the day, and one of the cemeteries in town, I think it's St. Mary's Old Cemetery, you used to always be buried so that if you stood up, you would be facing east. So it's like at the last, you know, the second coming, you stand up, you're facing the right way. Unless, unless the priest didn't like you, maybe, then he'd flip you around, you know. <laughs> It'd be like the last vengeance of the priest. No, but you'd be buried that way. So you would stand up facing east. Excellent. So yeah, find an eastern-facing plot. It's pretty cool. All these little symbols, signs and symbols. Yeah. yeah. So the question is about new churches, especially those who don't face East. You always have weird situations. So I was a seminarian with Monsignor Schechterly in Menominee Falls. And we had one of the parishes I was at was St. Anthony's. And St. Anthony's is built, I think it's facing East, but it's facing a direction. It had this beautiful high altar. St. Anthony's got to the point where it was too full. Always a good problem to have with your church, still a problem. So when they decided to enlarge the church, because of the way the land was, what they decided to do is they blew out the side wall, they built an altar on the side and turned the whole thing. Some of that was probably practical. Some of that's based upon the plot of land you have. 
I think, you know, the city of Menominee Falls doesn't care that you want to build your church facing the east. I also think, too, one of the things that I think we didn't do a good job of in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and 50s is explaining why we do what we do. And so you had, you know, I talked to servers all the time or some of these um, guys who had served back in the extraordinary form. And they, would, they still know the Latin responses at the foot of the altar. And, and I always tell them, you know what you were doing, right? Like you and the priest were doing the penitential rite together. And they're like, no, he never told us that. And so if you don't teach people why you do what you do, then the symbolism falls out. Everyone's like, why are we facing east? It's, you know, the, the plot of land face west, just go west. So I think that was at play as well. That's a good question. So the question is cremation. <laughs> cremation. So I always say this, you know, what's happened in the past has happened in the past, and that's fine. The church's stance on cremation is it, it is, once again, it's permitted, but it's not preferred. If someone is cremated, the preference of the church is you have the body at the funeral mass. Because if you've been to funeral masses, think of all the symbolism that has happens with the body. I put the pall over it. The white cloth symbolizes their baptism. They died with Christ in baptism, and they rose with him spiritually. Now they've literally died with Christ, so we hope they literally rise with him, right? You have the sprinkling of the holy water. Again, we call him baptism. You have the, the incensing of the casket. You have all of these things, the procession in with it, right? They're once again entering the church in the hope that they're entering the kingdom of heaven. So the church has always said, if at all possible, if you're going to be cremated, and it's permitted, but it's not preferred, do it after your funeral mass. So that's the church's teaching on that. The concern with cremation for so many years, the reason why they didn't permit it, is burning the dead was a pagan practice. The Jews didn't do it, right? Book of Tobit. Christians didn't do it. Why did they not do it? Resurrection of the body. The pagans, especially if you're a Greek pagan and you hated your body into you anyways because you want to be a pure intellect, right? You just burn the dead, get rid of them, right? Get rid of your body. The church always was, no, no, no. The resurrection of the body. We have to respect the body of the person. And so they never liked it. When they finally permitted cremation, they said, look, it's, it's permitted, but you can't use it as a denial of the resurrection. And they said it is possible because God created everything ex nihilo that he can reconstitute a human body from ash. It's within his realm of possibilities. So it's permitted. But you see why it would not be preferred, right? <laughs> you don't want to risk it. But it's just the symbolism's lost. All the symbolism and the facing east and the funeral rite, all of that is lost. I know it's way cheaper to be cremated. I, I understand this. And so sometimes this is the way you have to go. But permitted but not preferred. So for all the reasons you mentioned, it's just it's a major loss of symbolism. What you should do is you should ask to be buried with your sacred things too, right? I mean, that's strong symbolism, like your rosary, you know, like my parents with the manaturgium and the stole of my first confession. So all of those things are very, very powerful. So... <laughs> That's right. You don't want God to have to look for you. Plus, it'll take him a while. You know, he's got to reconstitute all these ashes. Might put your nose upside down or something. <laughs> That's funny. Yes. Yep. 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 So, for the bread to be valid, it has to have some gluten. The wine has to be 100% grape wine, because that's what wine is, 100% grape wine. 
So it has to be from a grape. What priests who cannot have alcoholic wine, also let's say a priest, you know, maybe he, in, in, when he was young, he was an alcoholic. And then he went to treatment and he stopped drinking and now he wants to become a priest. You're obviously not going to let him get around wine. So what they use is what's called mustum. And I believe, I'm not an expert winemaker. I'm an expert wine taster, but not winemaker, right? <laughs> Mustum, right when the wine begins to ferment, they remove. They stop the fermentation process. So it's 100% grape wine, and it has just like yay much alcohol. So that's probably what he would use is mustum. It's white, comes in a bottle. So is it required that there's some alcohol in context? Yeah, there would have to. Yep, some gluten. I, I believe there has to be some alcoholic content because fermentation has to have started and then you just stop it. Yes, yes. The dead should always be buried. Don't set them on your mantelpiece. Bury them. Burying the dead is one of the corporal works of mercy. So one of the cool things Father Nathan told me he did was in the year of mercy at the St. Mary's New Cemetery, the parish bought a burial plot and people who had cremains around their house could come and bury their loved ones for free. And I think like 33 people came and did it. And they did a committal service and buried them. So it's something that I think the parish should probably do every 10 or 15 years. You just publicize it. Make sure that happens. So yes, bury your dead. Don't scatter them. Yeah, because if you got all philosophical, there is a transcendent relationship to, between your soul and your body. And so once your soul and your body are joined together, that's who you are. You are a composite of body and soul. And so even when your body is dead, it's owed a certain dignity in light of the fact that you're a human person. So you bury them and they await this, the resurrection and the rejoining. So. Yes, we're just talking about death. We're just right around the sacred triduum. It's a good question. So the question was if, like, let's say a soldier died at war and you had no body. You, I actually don't know off the top of my head. My guess is you would celebrate a memorial mass for him. So there is a mass that you can celebrate for the dead if you don't have a body. Usually you do it, let's say, on the anniversary of the death. So, like, if... You know, like Monsignor Schechterly, who is one of my mentors, someday he will die. And if his, on probably yearly, on the day of his death, I will celebrate a memorial mass for him. Obviously, I don't have his body. It's in the ground. But you celebrate that mass. Has prayers for the dead. Uses the preface for the dead. I don't think you can do a funeral mass without a body. You would just do the memorial mass of the dead. I'm not 100% sure on that. If you had parts, I, I think I. You probably could, probably go for it. I'd have to think about that. That's something I'd have to ask the chancery if it ever came up. But yeah, Dave and then Connie. <laughs> Thank you. Let's get out of the death. Yes. You still could. Um, it's, it was like that final quote from the Congregation for Divine Worship. What is ultimately important is your interior disposition. And so even if your church is facing south, if the priest 
facing God is going to give the best interior worship of God, I think you go for it. Um, because not only is there the facing east, there's the whole idea of facing who you're talking to, the priest leading his people towards God. You know, I mentioned last week or two weeks ago the bending over during the Eucharistic prayer and the priest is a bridge. All of that symbolism is still there when the priest is ad orientum, even if he's not exactly towards the east. They call it liturgical east then. It's a symbol. The question is, why is St. Peter's facing the wrong way? I actually don't know. I've, I don't know the history of St. Peter's. I don't know. Maybe you had a pope who didn't have much hope for himself, and when he built it, no. I, yeah, that's a good question. I would have to look up the history of how it ended up that way. Remember, the St. Peter's we had was built, it's not super old in the realm of Catholicism. So it, Rome would have already been built up around it. I mean, Rome is the eternal city. It's an ancient city. Maybe where they wanted it, in Vatican City, that was the best they could do. I don't know. I don't know the history. All right. I've gone over, so I will give you guys a blessing and then let you go. You can always email me further questions. Um, that's always fine. So please stand. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Thank you all and have a blessed Triduum. I hope I see you this week.